If you were stranded on a deserted island, what books would you want to have with you? That question was posed to an early 20th century writer named G.K. Chesterton. And the folks that posed the question were looking for some profound answer. What books would you want with you if you were abandoned on a deserted island? You know what book G.K. Chesterton said? He said, I would want Thomas's practical guide to shipbuilding. <laughs> Makes sense, doesn't it? In other words, when you're in a desperate situation, your first thought is not of luxury, what books would I love to have with me? Your first thought is necessity. What do I need to get out of this desperate situation? Well, we are surrounded by desperate lostness. People all around us are far from God and need Jesus Christ. And when it comes to the desperate lostness of this world, our first thought should not be luxury. Our first thought should be necessity. What do we need to reach people with the good news? What do we need to push back the darkness? What do we need to impact the lostness all around us? What is necessary? Well, this morning I want to talk to you about necessities for kingdom advance. If we're going to be a part of God's kingdom expanding as the gospel goes forth and people get saved, then there are some things that are necessary for you and for me, necessary for our church. So keeping that in mind, I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 1. We began our study through Acts last Sunday, and we are continuing today. Acts chapter 1, we're going to begin reading in verse 4. Acts chapter 1. Verse 4. I want to ask you this morning, if you are physically able to please stand with us in honor of the reading of God's holy word. Acts chapter 1, verse 4. And while staying with them, the them refers to the disciples of Jesus Christ, he, he refers to Jesus, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven 
will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we come to you today in Jesus' name. And Lord, we come expressing and confessing our our dependence upon you. Lord, we really believe that all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. And so, Lord, as we dig into your Word and study the truths of Scripture, I pray that the Holy Spirit of God would, would meet with us and grip our hearts with the truths that we're going to learn. That we might be moved, that we might be changed. Lord, we are not simply seeking head information. Lord, we are seeking today life transformation. So, so Lord, move in our midst with power. Change us. Help us to understand, Lord, what is necessary when surrounded by desperate lostness. And we'll thank you and praise you for that grace. Lord, I ask that you would establish my steps in your word, and we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. We saw last week that the book of Acts is an account of the early church that a Gentile physician named Luke wrote to a man named Theophilus. And this was not the first book that Luke wrote to Theophilus. Uh, It's a sequel. Uh, The first book that Luke wrote to Theophilus is the Gospel according to Luke, where he gives him an account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. So there's a two-part Uh, series here. He wants Theophilus to understand who Jesus was, what Jesus Christ did, and he wants to understand how Jesus Christ worked through the early church in the first century. And so Luke wrote Luke and Luke wrote Acts. And by the way, here's some neat trivia for you. Uh, If someone ever asked you who wrote the majority of the New Testament, the answer is not Paul. The answer is Luke. Now, Paul wrote more books than Luke did, but when you look at the sheer volume of Luke and Acts, Luke wrote the majority of the New Testament. That's a little factoid for you. So when you go to work tomorrow, say, hey, who wrote most of the New Testament? And show off your new knowledge. Just kidding, don't do that. But Luke wrote a a large part of the New Testament, and we see him introduce uh, this book to Theophilus by reminding him of what, what he had told him in the book of Luke. As a matter of fact, the first three verses are a summary of the book of Luke, a summary of the work of Jesus Christ. And then, in verse 4, he transitions to, uh, to, to help us to, to see a, a conversation, a very important conversation that Jesus had with his disciples. And as we study this conversation, we're going to see surface some necessities for kingdom advance. Jesus wanted his disciples to understand, if you're going to do what I've called you to do, if you're going to reach the world uh, for the sake of my name, if you're going to proclaim the gospel, then here are some things you must have, some necessities. And we see this in the text. So what I want to do is I want to give you three necessities for kingdom advance. Three necessities for kingdom advance. Number one, we need power. We need power. Look what the Bible says there in verse 4. While staying with him, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from 
now. And then in verse 8 he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. We see this emphasis on, on the power of God that would come to the disciples that they would need to do what God had called them to do. Now, this power is made available uh, by the Holy Spirit. You might say the Holy Spirit is the power of God that gives us what we need to do what God has called us to do. And it's interesting to note how many times the Holy Spirit's mentioned here in chapter 1. For example, look there in verse 2. He's writing to Theophilus. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm reminding you of what Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit. So he's saying when Jesus Christ gave his last commands, he was doing it through the the power of the Holy Spirit uh, that guided him and anointed him during his time upon this earth. And then look what it says in verse 4. He he says, wait for the promise of the Father. The promise of the Father. The, The Father promised to send the Holy Spirit, after Jesus Christ was no longer physically upon the earth. And he says in verse 5, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Uh, And then in verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So you see this, this continual reference to the Holy Spirit of God. And by the way, we'll see the Holy Spirit's activity and power all the way through the book of Acts. Now, a little bit of, of Theology 101 because there's a lot of confusion concerning the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not some impersonal mystical force that kind of drifts throughout the universe. It's not like uh, Star Wars. The, the Star Wars is not the force. I mean, the, the Holy Spirit is not the force. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The Trinity is there's one God existing in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is just as much God as God the Father. And the Holy Spirit is just as much God as God the Son. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead. He has personality. He is a person. Uh, The Bible speaks of him having emotions and a will and him working in people's lives. And so the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. And here's what you need to understand. New covenant believers, and by new covenant I mean those that uh, know Christ on this side of the cross. New covenant believers experience the Holy Spirit in a different way than old covenant believers. Now, folks that were saved in for example, Old Testament days before the cross, before the resurrection, were saved the exact same way that you and I are saved. They were saved by faith. But people in the Old Testament were saved by looking forward to what God was going to do by sending a Messiah and a Redeemer. They placed their faith in God's future action, and they were saved by their faith. It says in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And we're saved the exact same way. We're saved by faith too, but not faith in looking forward. We're saved by faith in in, in looking back at what Christ has accomplished. We're saved by looking back at the cross and the empty tomb and placing our trust in the finished work of Christ. So whether it's an Old Testament believer or a New Testament believer, whichever side of the cross, everyone that's ever been saved has been saved by faith. So the Bible teaches. But those in the Old Testament 
And we in this room that know Christ, we experience the Holy Spirit in a different way. A different way than Old Covenant believers. Now after the ascension of Christ, when Christ went back to heaven in bodily form, he went back to the right hand of his Father. After that ascension, the Holy Spirit became, for believers, the primary guide, encourager, and helper for believers. As a matter of fact, Jesus said in John 16, verses 7 through 14, he says, it's a good thing to his disciples. It's a good thing that I go away. Now imagine that. He said, it's a good thing that I'm about to go back to my Father. It's a good thing that I'm I'm about to ascend in bodily form. Say, wait, how could it be a good thing that Jesus left earth to go back to heaven? I mean, how could that be a good thing? Jesus tells us. He says, a good thing because my Father's going to send the Comforter. He's going to send the the paraclete who will convict you and guide you and empower you and you will experience God in a personal way through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus, while on this earth, could not be in different places at one time. He was, he was confined to his body, if you will. He could not be in bodily form on different places on the face of the earth. He could only be in one place. But the Holy Spirit can be everywhere, Right? We are gathering together as Christians today, and the Holy Spirit is here with us. Amen? If you're a Christian, he's in your life right now. He's indwelling you. And there are uh, believers in Kosoro, Uganda meeting today. Guess what? The Holy Spirit's there too. And and so Jesus says, it's a good thing that I go away so you can can experience the, the, the personal guiding and comforting and encouraging of the Holy Spirit. Now you say, wait, when did this transition happen? where we experience the Holy Spirit differently than Old Testament believers. Well, the transition happened on the day of Pentecost. Look there in your notes. The day of Pentecost was the transition from the Old Covenant work of the Spirit to the New Covenant work of the Spirit. We'll get the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, but I believe that was the major transition point in redemptive history as to how believers experience personally the Holy Spirit in their life. And, and so that was the major transition point. Now, I'm not saying that Old Testament believers did not experience the Holy Spirit. It was just a a different way. Uh, For example, uh, we are depraved by our sin. No one can do anything good without the power of God in their life. So the Holy Spirit had to be doing something in the Old Testament. But, but it was a different way of experiencing the, the, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. There's a lot of debate about that, the way Old Testament believers experience the Holy Spirit and the way New Testament believers experience the Holy Spirit, but there's something different there. There, 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 there. There's a difference between Old Covenant and New Covenant believers and transition, uh, or, or, or Pentecost marks that day of transition. Now, the New Covenant experience uh, of the Holy Spirit is described by Luke as the baptism of the Spirit. Look what it says in verse 5. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, that's an allusion to what John the Baptist said at the beginning of Jesus Christ's public ministry. He said, there's one coming who will baptize you with fire, that's judgment, and with the Spirit. So those that do not embrace Jesus as their Savior experience the the judgment of God. Those that do believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior experience the Spirit of God. Which would you rather have? And he says here that you will be baptized in either judgment or the Spirit. The the word baptized, we're going to baptize in the 11 o'clock service in water. 
And when we baptize, we're going to see people that actually go under the water. The word baptize means immerse. That's what the word means, to immerse or dip. So he's saying, you will be, you will be baptized, you will be immersed in the Holy Spirit of God. Now think about how awesome that is. You will be immersed in the third person of the Trinity. That's a pretty cool thought, is it not? You're going to be immersed in the third person of the Trinity. So the new covenant experience of the Spirit is described as the baptism of the Spirit. And you say, wait, how do you define baptism? Well, I've given you a definition there. This comes from Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology. He writes, The baptism of the Spirit is a phrase the New Testament authors use to speak of coming into the new covenant power of the Holy Spirit. This would include several things. Look, the impartation of spiritual life and regeneration. When, he, when the Spirit uh, regenerates you, you're born again. Cleansing from sin. A break with the ruling power and love of sin and some empowering for ministry. And so Grudem says that the baptism of the Spirit refers to, to many different activities that the Spirit of God carries out in your life. But here's what I want you to zero in with me for a moment. Luke's emphasis in the book of Acts, Luke's emphasis is on the empowerment that the Spirit gives for ministry. So the, the Holy Spirit has many different roles in our life. But what Luke zeroes in on again and again is the power the Spirit of God gives us to accomplish what God has called us to accomplish. Got that? That's Luke's focus in his writing. Now, now here's the key. And I want to give you just some good foundational theology. You ready? All new covenant believers are baptized in the Spirit. So if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you have the baptism of the Spirit as a present reality in your life. You have been immersed in the Spirit. That means He's made you new. It means He's, he's washed away your sin. He's broken the power of sin over your life. And He gives you power to serve God. And every one of us that know Christ have the same power. It's not power just for preachers. It's not power for missionaries or staff members or the, the, the spiritual elite. This power is for every believer in Jesus Christ because if you've been saved, you've been baptized in the Spirit. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Read that on your own time. And so here's the point. You do not accomplish God-sized tasks with your own strength and ingenuity. Over in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, the Bible says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. You don't accomplish God-sized tasks by your own strength, by your own ingenuity. You accomplish God-sized tasks by my spirit. That's what God said. Those words of Zechariah were given to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel had been charged by the prophet Haggai with the task of rebuilding the temple. And God's word to him is a reminder that the obstacles that face him in the rebuilding task will not be overcome by conventional resources of might and power. Instead, the resources will come from an outpouring of God's Spirit. So what does that mean for you and for me? What does it mean for Longview Point Baptist Church? It means that we need and... We have the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish our mission. Wow. 
we need and we have. The power of the Holy Spirit of God to accomplish our mission. Now, isn't it interesting that Jesus told his disciples to not depart from Jerusalem? He had given them the Great Commission. Make disciples of all the nations. But he says, don't do it yet. Stay in Jerusalem until you are baptized by the Spirit, until the Holy Spirit is poured out upon you to give you the power you need. In other words, you can go and try to serve me right now in your own strength, but you will fall flat on your face. And listen, maybe that describes your, your Christian life. Maybe you're trying to serve God in your own strength and you wonder why you keep stumbling and falling. You wonder why your life is so powerless. You wonder why there's defeat after defeat instead of victory after victory. You wonder why you're not making a difference. You wonder why you're not making impact. Perhaps you're trying to live the Christian life and serve the Lord with your own strength, with your own resources, with your own wisdom, and it's not working out so well, right? But... If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have power available to you. The power of the Holy Spirit. If I knew that your vehicle had an, had an empty tank, I mean, the light's on, it's, I mean, it's just about to, to go dry. And you tell me, I'm going to drive to Knoxville. I'd say... Don't leave yet until you have fuel. Because if you don't have fuel, you're not going to get very far. And I believe Acts reminds us, if we don't embrace and employ the power of the Holy Spirit, we're not going to get very far. So God calls us to be a a spirit-filled church made up of individual believers that daily surrender to God and say, Holy Spirit, have your way. Change me, transform me, lead me, guide me, give me sensitivity to lostness, empower me to say the right thing, Uh, give me courage to share the gospel. Holy Spirit, have your way. And as we as individuals let the Holy Spirit have his way, then the power of the Spirit will sweep across our church and will do what you can't even imagine He will do through us. Can I tell you this? Listen to me. Come in close. The Holy Spirit can do more in a moment than we can accomplish in a lifetime. Do you believe that? So you say, wait, what are the necessities? If we're going to be a church that expands God's kingdom... That's our vision statement, expanding his kingdom across the street and around the world. If we're going to do that, if we're going to obey God in that area, what do we need? Well, we need power. And that power comes from the Holy Spirit of God. I could say more, but let me just go to the next one. Number two, we need a plan. We need a plan. Look what the Bible says there in verse 6. So when they had come... Together they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but they're still lingering in their heart and mind was this idea of of nationalism. 
that the Messiah has come to overthrow Roman rule and oppression and to lead us like a mighty king to be a, a free nation again. But Jesus did not come to free Israel from oppression. Jesus came to free sinners from their sin. Right? That's why he came. That's the kind of Messiah that he was. And they're still saying, okay, Jesus, you've come to this earth, you've done the cross thing, you've risen from the dead, now it must be time for you to get on the big white horse and lead a mighty army to overthrow Rome. So tell us when you're going to deal with all the wrong and all the trouble and set everything right and we can be your right-hand men and we can just live in peace and prosperity. That's what they wanted to know. But look what Jesus says in verse 7. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. In other words, there is coming a time when I'm going to set it all right, but it's not right now. Why is it not right now? Look what it says in verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. The reason that Christ has not come back yet to set everything right is because Jesus has a plan for the church to be his witnesses so lost people can be saved. And so they want to know when, when Christ is going to set everything right. And Christ says, don't worry about that. That's not in your purview. That's above your pay grade. You've got some work to do. And he lays out for them a plan. Now, now here's what I want you to understand. And we all need to grasp this. This is so important. It's possible to be busy with religious activity while having no real plan or direction. Did you know that? A church can be really, really busy and accomplishing nothing. And a church can believe that their busyness honors God, even though they're accomplishing nothing when it comes to kingdom advance. And so it's not that we just need to do something, we need to have a plan. We need the power of the Spirit, and then we need to know what to do. How to move forward, how to impact the lostness all around us. Well, I'm so grateful that Jesus here gives us a plan of action. Verse 8 is a prophecy. It's how the book of Acts would unfold. They would be witnesses in Jerusalem, and, and then the gospel would go into Judea, and then into Samaria, then to the very ends of the earth, the known world at that time. But... This passage, verse 8, is not only a prophecy, it's a great pattern. It's a pattern that you and I can follow because it works. In the book of Acts, it worked. This this verse 8 worked. So this needs to be our pattern as well. It needs to be our plan. She said, wait, tell me about the plan of action. Well, first of all, we see what we should be doing. We see what we should be doing. Verse 8. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my what? Witnesses. So what should we be doing? Bearing witness to the saving work of Christ. That's what he wants us to do. It's just that simple. Now, the word witness is, is a word for any person that has knowledge of truth, listen, that's willing to testify to that truth. So you can have knowledge of truth and not be a witness, right? I mean, 
Say you see something happen and uh, you see a crime unfold and you have the the eyewitness information to set the record straight so you can go to court one day and testify and and the bad guy gets caught and the good guy uh, doesn't get in trouble. You, You can have the information because you saw it, but until you go and testify, you're not doing anyone any good. Let me tell you what we have in the church in America today. Our churches are full of people that know the truth but aren't willing to share it. We know the truth. We gather week after week and we we preach and we teach and we sing and we fellowship and we study. We know the truth. But we're not witnesses until we are willing to testify. That's what he says there. You will be my witnesses. By the way, the word there for witnesses is also the word used for martyrs. Sometimes you're a witness for Christ will get you in all sorts of trouble. But that's what he calls you to do. To be a witness to the truth. So wait, what should we be doing? We should be bearing witness to the saving work of Christ. Now write this down, this is not in your notes. There are two ways you do that. Number one, you do it by sharing your personal testimony. Just share with folks what happened to you. Tell them your story. Tell them about your life before you were saved. Tell them how you met Jesus Christ. And then tell them how your life changed after you were saved. Share that testimony. That's a way for you to bear witness to the saving power of Christ. And then, number two... You need to tell people the story of Jesus. That he left heaven and he came to earth and he took on human flesh and he lived a perfect life and he died on the cross for our sins. After he died on the cross, he was buried. And early on the third day, he rose from the grave and he's alive today and he's mighty to save. And if anyone places their faith in him, they can be saved because Jesus paid it all. So how do you witness? You you share your story and you share his story. You share the good news. We see what we should be doing. Number two, we see where we should be doing it. So, okay, Wade, I'm to be a witness. Where should I be a witness? Well, Jesus here gives us a pattern. First of all, we should be bearing witness in the place where God has placed us. The place where God has placed us. You live where you live For a reason. God has providentially designed that you are where you are. And if he's put you where you are, he wants you to be a witness where he has you. Your community, your family, your workplace, he wants you to be a witness. The place where God has placed us. This is what he means when he says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. God had him in Jerusalem. He says, it's going to start in Jerusalem. That's where you will begin to be my witnesses. And listen to me. We, we, we just had a global impact conference. We talk about going to the nations with the gospel. Listen to me. Look at this quote from J. Oswald Smith. The light that shines the farthest will shine the brightest at home. So as we pray and proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth, that light will shine brightly in our Jerusalem, won't it? Hernando, Mississippi. So we're called to be witnesses in the place where God has placed us. Secondly, we're called to be witnesses in the places all around us. Inevitably, as folks got saved in Jerusalem, 
it spilled over into the surrounding countryside of Judea. I mean, if folks are getting saved and they're excited about it, you can't keep it in one place, can you? I mean, listen, if we start to see a harvest of souls in Hernando and we see people swept into the kingdom and they're getting saved and they're excited about it, you won't be able to keep that secret in Hernando. It'll begin to spill over into DeSoto County and and the Memphis uh, area because... When people are excited, they share Christ. We're also called to be witnesses in cross-cultural places. He says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria. Now, quick history lesson. Jews in this day and time harbored ethnic prejudice towards the Samaritans. Matter of fact, they hated them and the Samaritans hated the Jews. I mean, it was a very common thing in the first century. The, the, the Jews saw the Samaritans as Assyrian half-breeds because when Assyria came and took over the northern kingdom of Israel, they, 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 they uh, planted their lives in the area, they intermarried, and, and the, the Jews thought that the uh, Samaritans were not pure and they despised them. It was ethnic prejudice. It's just that simple. And isn't it interesting that Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses in a place among a people that everyone else despises. But you're to go and share the good news with them. Why? Here's the answer. Because God loves the Samaritans. Right? And who are we, listen, who are we to to harbor uh, resentment toward or to hate someone that God loves? Right? That, That doesn't honor the Lord. For us to despise any group of people for any sort of reason, that doesn't honor God. God loves everyone. So God wants to take the the gospel to people that look like us and to people that don't look like us. Because guess what? God loves people that look like us. Aren't you glad? And God loves people that don't look like us too. Aren't you glad? So he wants us to take the gospel to cross-cultural places. Everyone needs to hear of Jesus and his love. But here's the last thing. We should bear witness to the ends of the earth. He says, you'll be, re- receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Kingdom advance is not to stop until the very ends of the earth have heard the gospel proclaimed. That's what Jesus says. And I want you to understand this morning with all the gravity that I can muster, there are ends of the earth in 2014 that have never heard the name of Jesus. And we dare not play church if that is the case. We are called to be witnesses in our Jerusalem, in our Judea, in our Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's what he's called us to do. That's our plan. So what do we do? We, we bear witness to the saving work of Christ. Where do we do it? The answer is found there in verse 8. But Here's the third question. We see why we should be doing it. We see why we should be doing it. Verses 6 and 7, they wanted the kingdom restored. But Jesus says, listen, don't worry about the kingdom. There are lost people that need a Savior. 
Why do we bear witness in our Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the very ends of the earth? Because there are people that are perishing, dying, going to hell, eternally separated from God, and we have good news. People need a Savior. That's why we do what Christ has called us to do. Let me sum it up like this. The focus of the church should be gospel proclamation in concentric circles starting in our community. Gospel proclamation in concentric circles starting here, going to the ends of the earth. And listen, if that's not our plan, then we are just playing church. We're not involved in what Jesus wants us to be involved in. Got that? Doesn't matter, listen, doesn't matter how busy we are. Doesn't matter how many programs we have and, and what our buildings look like. It doesn't, that doesn't matter. If we're not involved in the plan that Christ has laid out for us. We're just a religious social gathering. We're not impacting lostness the way Jesus has told us we should. And so... When it comes to kingdom advance, three necessities, we need power, we need a plan, but number three, we need urgency. We need urgency. Look what it says in verse 9. When he had said all these things, gave them the great commission, told them to, to wait for the power of the Spirit, told them not to depart from Jerusalem, told them in verse 8 how they would be his witnesses. Verse 9, when he had said these things... As they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. I love this scene. It's really kind of funny. They're standing there and Jesus begins to just in bodily form ascend to heaven. And you can imagine they're just looking. I mean, you would be too, right? They're just... I mean, extraordinary. Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, died on the cross, rose from the dead, appeared to them over 40 days, and now he's, he's floating? I don't know, what, what do you call it? Uh, ascending back to heaven? And they're just... You would be too. And it gets kind of ridiculous because angels have to appear. And say, hey, psst, hey, guys, guys, he's gone now, but he's coming back. Same way you saw him go, he's coming back, bodily form, second coming of Christ. So the implication is get busy. Don't just stand here staring at the clouds. Go do something because he's coming back. You see, they needed urgency. They had power. They had a plan, but they needed that urgency. Gospel urgency spurs us into action. We can know about the power of the Spirit and, and have the Spirit uh, in our lives, and we can know the plan of God, but sometimes we can fail to be urgent, can't we? And we're so distracted by other less meaningful things. When you think about urgency, it is a missing ingredient in many churches today. Missing ingredient. But here's what I want you to understand, two things. The sure return of Christ should give us urgency. 
In the same way you saw him leave, he's going to come back. Second coming of Christ. And guess what? You don't know when that's going to happen. I don't know when that's going to happen, so get busy. All we know is it's going to happen, right? He's coming back, so get busy. We don't know how much time we have to be his witnesses. And so the sure return of Christ should give us urgency. And also, listen, the world's desperate condition should give us urgency. Why does Jesus say, you will be my witnesses? Because people needed to hear good news. There are lost people in Jerusalem that needed to hear good news. And in Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth that needed to hear the good news. That's why he told them to be his witnesses. The world's desperate condition, people far from God, should give us urgency. Let me give you a stat. You've got to be careful with stats. They're just, you know, they're just numbers sometimes, and it's easy to look past them. But let me give you this stat, and hopefully it'll, it'll shake us this morning from our lethargy. 150,000 people a day die. 150,000, that's roughly the population of DeSoto County. Every day. 150,000. 150,000. Yesterday, 150,000 people died. Today, 150,000 people will die. Tomorrow, 150,000 people will die. And, And probably most of those are unsaved. And based upon the statistics, many of those have never heard the gospel in a way that they can understand. We sit in our comfortable churches, our nice padded chairs and air conditioning and heating and lights. We have our rooms we meet in. We have a big church bus we drive around. One hundred and fifty thousand people per day die. And many of those die and step into eternity, an eternity of eternal separation from God, a place of utter torment, a place called hell. And so the world's desperate condition should give us urgency. That's the third ingredient, the third necessity of a of a church that advances the kingdom. Let me show you a video. Turn your attention to the screen. It's a really brief video. But it's a video of a situation in Perth, Australia. You notice the man falls between the side of the rail and he's stuck between the train and the platform. And the people very quickly come and the commuters at that day and time start to push against the train so that this man could be freed from his dilemma. You see, that man was in a precarious position. He was stuck between a train and concrete, and he could not rescue himself. His only hope was that a group of people would have the urgency to get together and push to rescue 
that man. And so my question is, do you have that urgency to be a witness to a lost and dying world? If I had to sum up this sermon, here's how I would sum it up. Here's the big idea. Urgent, spirit-empowered witness should be the goal of every Christian in every church. Urgent, spirit-empowered witness should be the goal of every Christian in every church. And so as we think about our lost and dying world, listen to me, we don't have time for luxury, do we? It's a time of necessity. Let's be the church that God has called us to be. 